guest today, Heather Ann Thompson, recently won the Pulitzer Prize and was a finalist for the National Book Award. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. I'm so happy uh, to have Heather Ann Thompson here in the studio. Heather, thanks for being here today. It's great to be here. <laughs> Braving some Arctic-type winds, it feels <laughs> exactly. like, that are kicking up. And and um, post hours of meetings, by the sounds of it, the busy exactly. time of the term. But thank you for being here. And we've got your book, um, your wonderful book, on the table with us, Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy, um, out from Pantheon Books. Uh, this last August on the table with us. Um, thanks to Jessica Purcell at Pantheon for sending along the book. Um, so before we start, I'll just read the short bio and then we'll fill in the pieces, Heather. Okay. That sounds good to you, too. Dr. Heather Ann Thompson is a native Detroiter, currently on faculty at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. The book that we have here, Blood in the Water, is a finalist for the National Book Award and on the best of 2016 for the New York Times, Newsweek, Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, Boston Globe, Best Human Rights Books. Um, and having read the book, I'm sure that this list will be growing. <laughs> I'm sure the LA Times will be wanting to jump on it, for example. <laughs> so thanks thanks for being here. And you've, we've been trying to do this for a while. Since, right. I think since... Maybe October, maybe even before, maybe I September. Think that's right, yes. And because of your hectic touring schedule and speaking schedule, I think the last time it was Tavis Smiley. I think uh, you were flying right. out for, for that show. Right. Well, to well, my great surprise, I mean, when I started the book 13 years ago, we were in the midst of one of the biggest prison buildups, and certainly nobody wanted to talk about prisoner rights or anything uh, going on in prisons. And so I'm deeply grateful that it seems like we're ready to have that conversation. And it seems like maybe with the advent of the, the book's publication as well, there's been several, not only the, your scholarly articles that were out earlier, like in 2011, et cetera, but articles in the New York Times, um, the Daily Beast, like all, you know, Huffington Post, sort of all mm -hmm. across the, the media outlets. So well, it's becoming part of the conversation. Well, certainly. I mean, I, there's been a there's been a real um, a real very dedicated group of both formerly incarcerated folks, but also advocates and um, scholars who, for a long time, have been trying to get us to think really hard about. Um, what's happening in our criminal justice system, the place where we put now all of our resources and all of our uh, all of our faith that somehow uh, it will be the thing that solves our social ills. And um, how can that be? Well, how can you know, that even be? It, or, or it's just something that's fed by fear. Well, I think so. And I think that certainly for younger people, um, the war on crime has been uh, part of their lives, uh, their whole lives. I mean, it really starts in 1965 and 
and just became so much part of the the noise, the background to uh, our lives that even, frankly, for myself, someone who uh, sort of felt that I was living in the midst of the buildup of the drug war couldn't even see what was happening until many years later, um, working on this book and working on incarceration, to even see that uh, we had embarked on something both historically unprecedented, internationally unparalleled, and really devastating to our communities. So so the Attica book is a history of an event, but it was one that um, I'm actually not sure folks would have been receptive to uh, even, you know, six or seven years ago. And thank goodness for the publication date of the summer. Right, right. Because things feel like the that there are many changes afoot yeah. as well. So this it had its a moment where it, it could speak. Yes. Well, hopefully, and I, I and I hope I really invite uh, listeners to 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 read this book, but also many other books um, in that same genre, because I do think that we are on this. We're in this critical moment where we are either going to really rethink uh, what we do in our nation's penal institutions and with our criminal justice policy and our drug laws, or we're going to get seduced by the language of law and order again and really get sucked into this vortex of uh, something that at least historians such as myself will tell you were disastrous. Could we talk a little bit about, you mentioned 13 years in the making, Heather, um, and and your earlier books, Who's Detroit? Politics, Labor, and Race in a Modern American City. This book will be reissued, right, in 2017? Yes, yes, indeed. Um, So, yeah, so I wrote my first book on Detroit and about what had happened to that city after the uprising of 1967. And and one of the interesting things about that book was that uh, the whole issue of policing and police brutality were central to that book. But I, at the time, of course, I published that in 2001, had not even considered that we were in the middle of a war on crime. And so I've gone back to that Seeing that Direct connection. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I've gone back to that book. So it will be reissued uh, this April with a whole new introduction and on the anniversary of the 67 uprising in Detroit. And so hopefully uh, that is another discussion that we will continue to keep having, which is not just about prisons, but also about policing. And I noticed that on the like so in the in the title of the book and as we've been speaking, you say uprising very mm-hmm. specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, or actually, the title of the book is rebellion. No, it is uprising. Okay, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but activists in in Detroit, like Grace Lee Boggs, would say rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, other media outlets or some history books would say riot. Mm-hmm. Um, so the word choice with uprising. Can right, you t- right. can you talk about that a little well, bit? I use actually <laughs> to be writer geeks or so. Well, in the, in the book, I use uh, rebellion and uprising uh, interchangeably. interchangeably, and I use them both frequently. Um, uprising. Um, I, I I think in the title, I really wanted to connote the the scale of it, and to sort of the, the that word uh, that word just just kind of conjures up people standing, people coming together. And so... Uh, Which so, the prisoners did in deep block. Absolutely, absolutely. And so riot, uh, meanwhile, connotes uh, disorder, chaos. And certainly for Attica, just for, you know, listeners who don't know as much about this event, um, you know, in 1971, in September of 1971, uh, what, what led 1,300 men to stand together and stand up was uh, really having endured 
brutal, brutal conditions, um, you know, being fed on 63 cents a day, uh, terrible medical care, one square of toilet paper a day. Um, but but what actually happened to bring them together on that fateful day was quite accidental. It was a, a gate had, you know, opened uh, in, in the middle of a panic thanks to a management decision. At breakfast time. At breakfast time. Um, that was, I do describe that actually, that moment as a riot. It was complete chaos. It was dangerous. Uh, one of the guards is very badly injured in that m- immediate moment. But what is significant is that those men then uh, came together, elected folks out of each cell block to speak for them. Um, they saw this as a real opportunity to have basic human rights addressed. And so the distinct between the chaos of an unexpected moment and the deliberation that that went into four days of negotiating with the state, I think is important to make. And basic human rights. And they had been, the prisoners from Attica had actually been writing letters and had Mm -hmm. contacted um, Congress people, had been speaking with the commissioner mm-hmm. already, or he had, there has right. been some dialogue. Um, well, one of the most extraordinary things that you are reminded again and again reading this story is that the men that were locked in Attica, by the way, men who you might not expect in this maximum security facility, some of these were, you know, 19 year old parole violators, many there, um, Vietnam vets, people there who were there because they had been drug addicted. Again, interestingly, the same profile of folks, folks inside today. But but in that space, um, they had an amazing faith in democracy. They believed that if you uh, worked through the system and wrote the right letters and signed the right petitions, that somehow your basic needs could be met. And, and uh, of course, they were not. And so the rebellion grows out of um, an extraordinary frustration. Uh, these guys weren't getting out of prison. They just wanted to, uh, you know, for example, to be able able to see their children uh, if they were in a common law marriage. Um, you know, basic, basic human rights. Or be, to be able to shower more than once, once a week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and so the story is really one that reminds us that what happens behind bars really is a marker of how humane we are as a society, both then and today. So what, yeah, what is it telling us about today then? Well, I mean, I think that the, the book, while it is very fundamentally about this uprising and about the very specific things that happen afterwards, um, which we can talk about. Ultimately, uh, it does bring us up to today, and it suggests that because of the lessons we didn't learn at Attica, because of the lies, frankly, told by the administration at Attica, um, the nation was really swindled into this war on crime and mass incarceration that frankly, has led today's prisons to be worse than they were in 1971, which is almost hard to uh, to get our heads around. Because so many things, you would even think basic things like air ducts or ventilation or different things would be updated. Because it, it feels like how you describe um, Attica mm-hmm. um, within this is that it's it's at the time in 1971, it felt so barbaric, so like broken down and old fashioned, like mm-hmm. almost in a medieval fortress. I think that's mm-hmm. part of it. Using the, you have great images and photographs that are within the book as well um, to go with 
the descriptive prose um, that sets the scene. And you, you mentioned earlier, Heather, the story that this book keeps to the story of 1971 this and, and what happened thereafter, mm-hmm. the years mm-hmm. after, and then bringing us to the present. But it's very much rooted in this time and the people. Um, well, it is, but, you know, it it's is a, a story. It is very much. I mean, I'm a historian, and historians um, at bottom are rescuing um, stories from our past that we think are important to really dig into. And uncovering right. in this book. Right. Maybe we can talk about that in the next quarter. But rescuing. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And so so the book is fundamentally about this this uprising, this rebellion. But but readers may be surprised to learn that it's actually only the first maybe third of the book that's actually about those days in Diard of Attica. The rest of the book actually is about the state's incredible efforts to make sure that their own members of law enforcement are not held accountable for what will be the horror of the retaking of Attica. And, you know, part of that story is this is why it took me 13 years to do the book. It was, you know, the state of New York does not want that story told for sure. And so much of it is it goes into the the courts, Mm -hmm. the legislation, the... um, and, and, and what's incredible to me also um, is that how easily this reads. Um, it oh, doesn't. Well, thank you. It, that's, it's not um, a, a dry history book. Well, I appreciate <laughs> um, that. I mean, that, that you know, I, to me, it was really important to write this story as one that, uh, you know, my grandparents could read that. That, uh, you know, someone who was not an academic, someone who I didn't want it to get bogged down into jargon or, you know, discipline specific prose. I really wanted the the corrections officers, the prisoners, the lawyers, the judges. Uh, I mean, I want to take you into Rockefeller's living room when they're talking about or this or President Nixon's White House, House or his pool house. Where exactly. he held the meeting so that the state could get their story right. Exactly. I tell you, um, Heather, I had a hard time reading this book in the evenings. And <laughs> I thought that once like the the Attica days, the uprising and then the taking mm-hmm. um, back were over. It would be less disturbing, but it's not. Right. <laughs> it's very much not. It's such a different kind of violence, but it's still violence. Well, and that's and the, injustice. That's the part that I think that I mean I learned, and I think that most people will find uh, new, which is that, you know, many Americans knew that there was this uh, uprising at Attica in 1971, and many knew that. The police on the fifth day uh, retook that prison with extraordinary violence, you know, essentially killing, you know, 39 men, uh, severely wounding a total of 128 men. Mind you, none of the prisoners or the guards had guns. This was all directed at them. Right. Exactly. The hostages inside. Um, But that extraordinary violence of the retaking of the prison uh, was really just the beginning. Uh, You know, my research discovered extraordinary torture that went on after that. And then perhaps, as you mentioned, most disturbingly, uh, that from the sort of lowest levels of power to the highest, meaning the presidency and the Supreme Court of the United States, um, everybody turns a blind eye to what is clearly a story of atrocity and clearly a story of abuse. And, and so my book really 
digs into how did that happen? How did what was in essence a cover-up and what in essence was uh, telling the nation a faulty narrative of Attica, how does that happen? And that's what I tell you in the book. We're going to take a short break. Today on the program, Heather Ann Thompson is here. Her book, Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. I'm T. Hutzel. We've got the Liz behind the glass. We'll be back. Okay. One, two, three, four. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers here on WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. Um, and we just heard Attica State by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Um, one of one of the benefits uh, to, raise, to raise money for prisoners and hostages and other people who had been, um, who were definitely suffering. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, in fact, right after uh, the prison is retaken with such ugly force, um, there is, you know, a real sense across uh, certainly progressive communities that this was, um, well, first of all, it was a massacre and uh, that uh, it was going to be very dicey because the state of New York was training all of its attention on the prisoners trying to prosecute them, not the members of law enforcement who had caused so much damage. So when John Lennon and and when Bob Dylan and all of these folks start to write songs and start to speak out and try to raise funds, it's it's to try to raise funds for these prisoners who they can see very clearly are being railroaded by the state. And this is Dr. Heather Ann Thompson. Her book, Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Rebellion of 1971 and its legacy, the uprising, rather uprising, we talked about. The <laughs> and the reason for this. And we also were talking in the first part of the show, Heather, about how the book moves and how it's it's a it's a narrative that it, um, it's an engaging narrative that um, we'll talk about the structure in a little bit, maybe okay. after this. Okay. But do you mind reading so we get a sense of sure? The prose? Yeah. I mean, I can give you a sense of the way in which I try to try to 
tell people, uh, bring people inside of Attica, um, I guess the first thing I'll read comes from uh, a passage uh, when uh, the 1,300 men have uh, moved into one area of the prison D-yard, and they're trying to figure out how can they take this unexpected moment and, and you know, turn it into something positive, uh, maybe perhaps get some better uh, human rights, better conditions in the prison. But on that first night, uh, I try to tell you what that felt like for all of them to be in the prison that night together. Despite the sense of foreboding, there were moments of levity and, for some, even a feeling of unexpected joy as men who hadn't felt the fresh air of night for years reveled in this strange freedom. Out in the dark, music could be heard, drums, a vibe, v- drums, a guitar, vibes, flute, sax that the brothers were playing. This was the lightest many of them had felt since being processed into this maximum security facility. That night was in fact a deeply emotional time for all of them. Richard Clark watched in amazement as men embraced each other, and he saw one man break down into tears because it had been so long since he'd been allowed to get close to someone. Carlos Roche watched as tears of elation ran down the withered face of his friend Owl, an old man who'd been locked up for decades. You know, Al said in wonderment, I haven't seen the stars in 22 years. As Clark later described his first night of the rebellion, while there was much trepidation about what might occur next, the men in Diard also felt wonderful because no matter what happened later on, he said, they couldn't take this night away from us. So Thank that's you. just Thank uh, just a just a piece, you know, to try to to try to get us to understand, you know, what did that feel like in those first few moments? So, as a writer, creating that feeling, you said I tried to create the feeling. Was this coming from research? Did you read? Did you talk to some of these people? Did you see some tapes? Um, read. I know later you mentioned reading letters, mm-hmm. that, but but yeah, how did so? How did you? come by these characterizations? Well, the, the research journey was was quite uh, convoluted, to be honest. I mean, on the one hand, as a historian, we are trained, we go into archives and we ask for, you know, box 30, folder 20, and we recount the story. But in this case, the state of New York uh, had really shut down all of the records and still has shut down all the records. And so to do this book meant uh, trying to figure out, you know, how can I get at the story? And, and part of that process was both both talking to survivors, both both the prisoners and also the surviving hostages and their families, but but also to just really uh, dig and see where had uh, folks that had been in the yard uh, talked about it or given interviews. And, and luckily for me, uh, this extraordinary human rights story goes on for decades. The men in the yard, both prisoners and hostages, refused to be silent about what happened to them. And so ultimately they testify about it, they write about it, and and some write memoirs, and so I was able to draw from all of that to try to to try to bring us in into that space. And what were you you mentioned um, in the beginning of the book as well? Sort of this this ag- like this agonizing decision, this this struggle because you were talking with survivors, with people mm-hmm. who had lived this. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the people had um, in the introduction. You said. Um, had worked for 45 years to keep their names unnamed mm-hmm. in this history. 
Well, so one of the one of the really remarkable things about this story is imagine that on September 13th, 1971, the state of New York sends in hundreds and hundreds of state troopers armed to the teeth. And within 15 minutes, it is a bloodbath, thanks to them. But then somehow... Uh, but they the also next, use gas. They oh, my God. This is right. This is after they've already incapacitated everybody with tear gas. Which would have taken it back. Exactly. But imagine that after this extraordinary moment of violence, that never is any member of law enforcement held accountable. So part of my research was trying to figure out who... Who were these men? Um, who were the people who had killed so many prisoners and hostages and tortured them? And and frankly, what did the state know? Why didn't the state prosecute any members of law enforcement, even though it tried to indict or did indict 62 prisoners? So so ultimately, uh, thanks to some very lucky research finds, I was able to find out who those men were. And ultimately, uh, I do name them in this book. And while I say in the beginning that it was agonizing, uh, it, you know, it was. It was also not a choice. I'm a historian, and that was the history of the Attica investigation, and I had to tell what I found. But it was agonizing because, of course, yes, you know, these men, the, the members of law enforcement, have tried very hard to remain in anonymity. And certainly for the survivors, it has been incredibly painful for them to read this book, um, to actually learn what happened to their loved ones. And so uh, it was, in some respects, it has been emotional very, very difficult from the beginning. I, everybody I interviewed for this book, literally, I believe everybody, uh, broke down at some point in our conversation um, because Attica has never, people have never been able to heal from Attica. So for this research, did you go to these people's homes or towns or cities, meet up with them mm -hmm. in that way so that it was, it was personal, it was intimate in that way with this Absolutely. I, I have spent uh, time in folks' living rooms, and uh, thanks to them, I've been handed, uh, you know, mementos and, and diaries and, 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 you know, heard personal stories. Um, I have been in the prison of Attica, which, which was itself uh, quite uh, extraordinary experience. Um, Attica today was built in the Depression. It looks today just as it did in 71, and in 71 it looks as it did in the Depression. Um, and to, to actually be up on that catwalk and to see that the cement is still chipped from yes. where those bullets hit. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, it, this, this research journey took me everywhere, um, but I have to say that ultimately it was coming across documents that were there completely Completely, I mean, the state didn't know they were there that allowed me to tell the real smoking gun story, which was uh, who did what, when, and who was responsible. Could you, could you tell us that story then, the uncovering where you, when you found things you weren't meant to find? Yeah. Because at the beginning, they, they even, when they sent in for early interviews of prisoners and information gathering, they sent in police officers or correction officers to do the interviewing of the prisoners. Uh, what kind of information were they <laughs> right. even collecting? And then what they had, they also hid away. Well, so in the initial moments 
of the retaking uh, or after the retaking, the state of New York knows that it's been a disaster. It, many people have been killed. Many, many people have been severely wounded. And so rather than take responsibility. And the hostages, too. I exactly. Think that they was kill the their concern. Own, right? They the, kill their own men, which, by the way, my own research indicates they knew they were going to kill their own men, which is its own bombshell. But, but the truth is that they step, stepped out in front of the prison and they told the nation not what had happened, but they said that the prisoners had killed the hostages by, uh, by slitting their, their, their throats, throats and by castrating them. So this moment is the beginning of what's going to be a really horrific story of cover-up because what they then do is begin an Attica investigation, that is to say, what happened here? And they, as you mentioned, they send in their own police officers, the same people who had retaken the prison with such violence to investigate what had happened. And then that same investigation prosecutes prisoners, not police. Well, it was those files that have been uh, remain hidden away. That is to say, the Attica investigation files. Um, and uh, those were the files that, uh, again, completely by happenstance, I found a great many of. And those was it were, in Buffalo? It was. was. That, okay, because <laughs> it was in the Erie County Courthouse in Buffalo, New York. And and again, I say, keep saying it's accidental. I mean, I had been calling every courthouse in New York. I had just no idea where were these records. I knew where the official records were. Those The state of New York had those. Uh, but where were the criminal records? Who, you know, where were the, you know, the ancillary records rated, related to this? And it just so happens that a big stash of them had been moved to a courthouse in upstate New York. Uh, I don't think anyone in that courthouse had any idea of their significance. They allowed me to see them. And the minute I was in there, I knew, oh, my God. I mean, there was grand jury testimony. You know, there were depositions and, and investigative reports. But most significantly in that group were the actual records indicating what the state knew in terms of members of law enforcement crimes. So what did that look like when you were holding that in your hands? How were you able to piece that together? There? Well, I mean, you know, this was not, uh, I can't take credit for that. The reason why we know what we know is that at the time, uh, back in 1974 and 1975, there was an investigator inside of the investigation, Malcolm Bell, who was trying to prosecute members of law enforcement, and he kept getting thwarted. And he got very, very suspicious when he was utterly shut down when Nelson Rockefeller, the governor of New York during the Attica retaking, was in confirmation hearings to be the vice president of the United States. And it was at that moment it became clear to him that they were never going to allow him to prosecute police. So he became a whistleblower. And he wrote a 167-page document that laid out the evidence they had against the police. And um, there was only three copies of that document uh, that were ever distributed, one to the presiding judge, one to the then governor of New York, Hugh Carey, and the other to the attorney general. Uh, I think what I found was the document that the presiding judge had had, and that was really what pulled it together. You, I just can't imagine actually being like I'm trying <laughs> you, being in a room in this Erie County 
courthouse. I'm imagining perhaps a basement room. Even. Well, I mean, exactly. Dark and dingy and certainly uh, completely unexpected. And, and I have to say that, you know, um, I understood even in that moment what it was. I, I immediately, when I was able to get copies, I mean, have kept them very close to me. I have scanned them multiple times. And the reason for that is that I was always afraid if somebody knew what was there, that they would disappear. Take, take and away. ultimately, that's exactly what happened. They have all disappeared. All of those documents that were there are no longer there. And in fact, the reporter that went to try to find them were told that they never were there. So um, so it's a good thing you have those <laughs> yeah. scanned documents and printouts of them in various yeah, places, exactly. I'm imagining. Exactly. Let's take a short break. And then when we come back, we'll hear more from Heather Ann Thompson, her book, Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. We'll be back. Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Heather Ann Thompson is here. The book, Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy out this August with Pantheon Books. Um, Heather, in the last uh, quarter of the show, you read a section of the book for us to show us what it was like in D. Yard um, when the when the prisoners and the hostages actually like knew what was happening that they were out there like it was seriously it was day one mm -hmm. the evening of day one um now moving forward in the book um would you mind reading for us sure so just by by way of a little background so the the negotiations go on for four days between the state of new york and the prisoners in dr they've brought in observers to help them uh with uh, oversee the negotiations with the state and uh in the midst of this though there's a great fear that the state is in fact not negotiating in good faith that they're going to plan a forcible retaking because outside of the prison are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of state troopers passing out weapons and and itching to but, get inside and, and not assigning weapon like numbers exactly. to people's names there's deliberately not no no planning like there's deliberate non-planning exactly they want to make sure that the troopers who are going to go in uh, have no accountability that they we don't know what 
what serial numbers they're of the weapons they are carrying and so forth. But for the men inside, and by day four, it was both the hostages who were the civilian and guard employees and the prisoners were both essentially begging the state not to come in, uh, to let these negotiations continue. And, and everyone was clear that if the state came in with force, that it would be a bloodbath. My reading is from this moment when um, everyone finally understands on the morning of the fifth day that the state isn't going to come in, that it's pretty likely that the state is about ready to come in. A helicopter, a surveillance helicopter has gone overhead. And um, up and the prisoners make this decision uh, uh, to take hostages up onto the catwalk. And this is this is really part of a plan to surround them with these guys that have these sort of makeshift weapons to hopefully uh, dissuade the state from coming in. In other words, the message they're trying to send the state is, if you come in, you're killing your own, right? So I take you to that moment up on the catwalk in a discussion between a, a guard, a hostage guard by the name of Mike Smith, and a prisoner by the name of Don Noble. Up on the catwalk, prisoners and hostages alike waited with hearts pounding for what might happen next, wobbling slightly because it was hard to keep one's balance while blindfolded. Hostage Mike Smith began having a serious discussion with one of his so-called executioners, Don Noble. Noble was one of the two prisoners who'd gone to great lengths to protect Mike from harm when the rebellion broke out five days earlier, and Mike was greatly relieved to hear this man's voice next to him once he had finally made it through D-Tunnel and up onto the catwalk. Mike had been worried for days now that the state might choose to sacrifice him and his fellow hostages, and he felt the need to write a letter to his wife, Sharon, in case he didn't make it out of Attica alive. He'd gotten hold of a pen from one of the other hostages, who had somehow managed to keep it hidden in his pocket, and he'd secretly written her a note that he then secured deep in his wallet. With the minutes ticking by, Mike and Don both expressed deep sadness that the last four days had come down to this. Then, after telling each other how much how to reach their loved ones, they made a solemn pact that if anything happened to either of them, they would find the other's family members and make sure they knew how much they were loved. No sooner had Mike Smith and Don Noble finished exchanging their personal information than they heard a sound that sent a chill down their spines. It was the ominous roar of helicopter blades revving up. Besides being able to hear it, Mike Smith recalled in horror, you could actually feel the concussion of the propellers. And that reading really takes us to this moment when uh, the state sends in a helicopter um, that blankets these men with this toxic cloud, which is really a powder of CN gas. And it renders everybody uh, nauseous and blinded and immobile. And that is when they sent in hundreds of heavily armed state troopers and corrections officers who begin shooting from the moment they enter. Who were wearing gas masks that they'd never worn before, never right. been trained to to use, let alone respond or you can't like mm -hmm. hear or see. Um, they were given weapons that were outlawed in the Geneva Convention. Is this right? right? Like, Some people that were bringing never fired before rifles that they'd never been trained to fire um, some had shotguns that were shooting out a spray of buckshot in fact that's what ended up killing many of the hostages but they also had taken off their identifying badges before they went in which really kind of gets to the heart of what this was about this was about retribution it was about revenge it was not just about having order in the prison because in fact even though order had already 
been really uh, underway with the dropping of the gas. And certainly after the police initially went in, uh, the, the, the shooting continues. The abuse will go on for days and weeks. Um, so how... When you were writing this, like as like part of the process, you you talked about knowing when there was this. I'm, well, I'm wondering how how was it to write this portion of the book, mm-hmm. the retaking these moments, and then thereafter. Well, you know, I'm a, as a historian here at Michigan, I. I take writing very seriously with my students, and I think that writing is probably one of the hardest things that any human being has to to do, or at least to do well. And um, so I found this book to be incredibly challenging, and one of the reasons is that what, what it raised for me was how do you effectively write trauma? In other words, how do you recount, for example, those moments when the state police come in or the days and weeks of torture that they then carry out without either um, numbing the reader, um, sort of making, you know, sort of gratuitous or pornographic violence, or without shortchanging what was indeed horrific. And so uh, I have to say that the two chapters of the book, one is called No Mercy and the other is called The Beat Goes On, were both the hardest for me to write. And I hear from readers, uh, indeed, the hardest to read. But, you know, what I did, I I decided to make the chapter short so that people could uh, take a breath and kind of recover uh, before deciding to go forward. Uh, But also to always mix those, first of all, to let the people themselves tell those stories. Uh, uh, You know, there was one of the prisoners that the title of the book, Blood in the Water, comes from a prisoner who as all the shooting is happening, he says, I looked up. He's, he's you know, he's, of course, crouched. He's, he's flat on his stomach. He's trying to, uh, to, to get away from these bullets. And he, he looks up and he says in bewilderment, he says, all I could see was blood in the water. So that's where the title comes from. And, you know, another prisoner uh, tells of when he was in the midst of this kind of brutality and this torture, he he says later, you know, I looked up and I've never seen this much hatred in blue eyes. And, you know, so I tried whenever possible to to let people tell you themselves what they what they experienced. Um, but uh, but the short chapters were for the readers, but also for myself when needed to, to take that break where you could kind of think about it and then move forward. So let's talk a little bit about structure. Since you're saying the short chapters, mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. deliberate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and you start the book, I think, with a dedication. Mm-hmm. Um, and your dedication, often it's just like a one name or so. Right. Your dedication is unusual. Mm-hmm. So I, in the dedication to the book, um, you know, other books that I've written, I obviously dedicate them to my children or to, to, to my husband. But in this case, I dedicated it first to all of the men who were killed on September 13th, uh, 1971. And that, uh, if you actually read it, uh, if you uh, know uh, something about Attical, you know it's quite, um, it, it's, it itself makes a statement because I list these men alphabetically, which means that the prisoners and uh, their hostages who were killed by the state are listed, uh, you know, in alphabetical order, not separated out, right? There's not a separate list for the prisoners and for the hostages. And that was deliberate because often these names are completely separated out. But I also dedicate it to all those who were scarred and maimed 
by the state's decisions at Attica. And that's because, um, indeed, the fallout from this was generational. Um, You know, one of the slain hostages, his son, ended up killing himself. Many of these families, both hostage and prisoner families, were thrown into such utter trauma that, frankly, to this day, they still suffer. So I wanted this book to be dedicated to them. And and then if so structurally you begin then with an epigraph of four quotes mm-hmm. and so this also feels very uh, obviously purposeful the voices that are represented here right so i pick quotes from all of the the, the parties uh, or at least not all of the parties but some of the most important parties that um whose perspective you will hear or whose stories you will hear. And the first one is from an Attica corrections officer who was taken hostage and he ultimately was killed by the state. And he, his epigraph is he's talking on that fourth day, but the night before the state comes in and he's trying to impress upon the governor to keep negotiating. And he says, you have read in the paper all these years of the Milai massacre. That was only 170 odd men. We're all going to end up with 19 men. We are going to end end up with 1,900 men here if things don't go right. I'm sorry, it says 1,500. Um, so I wanted you know, to use that because I wanted people to understand that the hostages were terrified. They were begging for the state to be humane and to keep talking. I also have... Uh, and they were seeing the other side of the state. That's exactly right. And I have an epigraph uh, quotation from a National Guardsman, which I actually won't read because it is just too gruesome and uh, for what he saw on going into the prison. Um, I included one from a state trooper, one of the uh, few state troopers who tried to do the right thing later and tell his story. And he just said, you wake up at night sweating. It was so overpowering to see that much trauma. And then, of course, I show the one about from the prisoner about blood in the water. Because it is such a strong narrative, is that part of, you break the book into parts, Mm -hmm. Heather, and then um, each of the, after the introduction, for example, the first part is called the tinderbox, um, and then we have a portrait of a a person that will be playing a pivotal role in in Mm -hmm. the, the coming chapter, and the first one is Frank Big Black Smith. We meet them, and they're very short portraits, so it's usually a page and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you go into the chapter one, right? With a sub, like with a with a chapter heading, not so greener pastures. So there's very um, uh, how you're using text mm-hmm. and structure. It seems very vital to the project. Well, the goal, you know, it's interesting because I had to think again and again, what is, what is, what am I really trying to do here? And, and of course I began what I tried, what I tried to do in the beginning was I just simply want to tell a story that nobody knows very much about and the civil rights story that happens in 1971. But the deeper I got into the project, I realized that what I really wanted to do was to humanize the story, and in particular to humanize the people whose story this was. So the choice to begin every part of the book with a a short uh, window into 
to, you know, various parties at Attica. So the first one is a little snippet about one of the prisoners who will become vital to the story throughout the book. You know, the next one is of one of the observers, uh, Tom Wicker from the New York Times, who comes to Attica. And I want you to hear this from his point of view. And then, you know, during the retaking, I, I, I give you one from a trooper, Tony Strollo, who actually participated in this brutal retaking. But but interestingly, his brother was one of the hostages. So I want you to hear what he thought he was doing before he went in and and, he's, so and he's told before he goes in by a superior officer, we I don't think we're going to make it. Yeah, to meaning your brother right, in time. meaning that yeah, exactly, meaning that uh, this is unlikely to be successful. Let's take a short break and then we'll be back today on Living Writers. Heather Ann Thompson is here. Blood in the Water: The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. I'm T Hetzel. We'll be back. <laughs> Now, you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Heather Ann Thompson is here. Her book, Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy out with Pantheon this August. Um, so right before the break, we were talking about the building of the book. Like once you've you've done all the research, you're doing the writing and then you're bringing in the, the structural aspects mm -hmm. to like how how to convey how to tell the story. Mm -hmm. um, well, for me, it also, you know, the decision about how to tell the story uh, loomed more important, actually, uh, over time for me, because uh, it became clear to me in the research uh, process that that the consequences of us having gotten the story wrong were actually really much more severe than I had fully understood at first. Um, because the state of New York uh, stepped outside of that prison on that day and said that the prisoners had created those, uh, that created that trauma, had, had uh, in fact killed guards, I mean, that the, all of the brutality was down to the prisoners. Uh, my research indicated that that had a huge impact in this country, that in fact, you know, prior to that moment, you know, many Americans were very sympathetic to prisoner rights and wanted to reform prisons and indeed wanted to decarcerate quite a bit. But Attica was this incredibly important moment where uh, America is told that prisoners are animals, they are barbaric, they, they castrate people, they assassinate them, they kill them. You know, this was a lie. 
And so it became clear to me that uh, getting the story right and, and writing it in such a way that as many people as possible would read it wasn't just about rescuing history. I hoped that it would remind us that we, that getting those stories wrong sometimes uh, lead us to make terrible, in this case, policy decisions. Uh, you know, it is that hostility towards human beings behind bars that really, you know, is going to touch off mandatory minimums, uh, you know, solitary confinement and stop and frisk and incredibly aggressive drug war. Um, when we lost our belief that people behind bars were people, um, that mattered. And so therefore, the how to tell the story mattered more to me than I thought it would. And those and again, as you said, Heather, they were lies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the proof was there because the story that they told getting ahead of themselves was that could be proved wrong by the medical examiners who examined the bodies. There weren't no one. Maybe someone had a nick on it. Maybe two necks had a nick. Right. At the back of their neck because of the prisoners who had been shot and were falling. falling. (laughs) Yes. Not at all the way they were not executed by the prisoners. It was gunfire that was clear that only the state were the the, the only ones with the guns. Right. Um, Well, and and, and let me just say, because I I failed to say this, to, to be clear about why would that have had a national impact when this was, you know, a small town in upstate New York? Well, the reason is that Attica uh, had every media outlet there. The prisoners understood that they wanted the media there because they didn't trust the state to, to negotiate in good faith. So outside of this prison, you know, the New York Times, the L.A. Times, the AP. So when the state tells this lie about the the massacre and why it had happened, that story went out on the front page of the New York Times, the L.A. Times, and every small town newspaper in America. That's what's hard to fathom, that they they printed it right away. That's right. And even people that had been um, on, had gone in as witnesses, as observers. Yeah. Um, they believed it. They believed it. Yeah. Because, Which of is... course, no one doubts the New York Times. No one doubts our, you know, most revered press outlets. But, you know, what it tells us, of course, is that uh, when we don't, when we do not dig into these stories and when we let the people with power always tell the stories uh, that literally uh, lies can be told. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. This is this is just what happened. And and certainly one can ask, why did The New York Times pre to print a story uh, that prisoners had castrated, uh, you know, hostages and had killed them? Well, you know, this goes again to our core of who we are as a country, you know, it, it's because they didn't doubt it. They didn't, you know, they, they didn't question that a black man would castrate a white man or that that a prisoner would, you know, kill a guard. And in fact, um, you know, it just reminded me again of this importance of humanizing the people in the book because uh, because that's what we've lost. We've lost this idea uh, of uh the people inside are, are us, right? They are, our, you know, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters. We've lost that piece of it. And it, this isn't just a morality tale, right? This actually has had huge consequences for our country, for our economy, for our, uh, you know, for what our children's futures look like. I think it's also interesting, Heather, that um, in, in the chapter Stepping Back, um, in the, the first half of the book, um, 
I'll just read from it. Um, In fact, as one reporter noted after canvassing the various local towns near Attica, few people can be found on the rustic roads who accept the medical examiner's report that the hostages who died during the state assault on the prison were killed by gunshots, even though the governor himself had just conceded that those shots had probably come from the weapons of state policemen. well, so there are people, there are heroes in the story, right? That that there are people, even this one lone, you know, coroner who can very easily see that, that everyone's been shot. Right. Even though in his autopsy bay, he's being intimidated by state troopers. And I mean, his life was forever hell for having told the truth. But even though we had those truth tellers at the time, meanwhile, because the state of New York only prosecutes prisoners and because no member of law enforcement is prosecuted, that all sort of doesn't matter, right? Because the message is sent for the next 20 years that everything that was ugly about Attica was down to the prisoners. And actually, I think that's another reason why this book is timely, because, you know, today when we see a police shooting, for example, if a police officer is not indicted or if they're indicted and they're not convicted, we, because we believe in our democracy and we believe in our system, we say, well, then they must not have been guilty or there must not have been evidence. And And Attica really frighteningly reminds us that that's not at all necessarily the case, that in fact, people go to extraordinary lengths to protect their own. And the people with the power have the means to do that. So so Nixon, who was the president at the time, he only had one question after that massacre. And he said, well, was it a bloodbath? I mean, he says, was it a black business? And when Rockefeller says, yes, Mr. President, it was, which, by the way, it was not. It was multiracial. Um, that's all he needs to know. Um, so To fit it into the present exactly. narrative that was already rolling exactly. in his own head. So um, stories matter. I mean, to, to your original question, stories matter. And um, so writing matters because, uh, you know, to dig into those details, the small details matter a lot. And and maybe to examine the stories that we do tell ourselves, somehow to try to stay open, yeah. To know that what's on the surface isn't always what's first delivered isn't always the truth, right? Because access even to information is very difficult or, sometimes, or even if it's convenient mm-hmm. for That's us. Right. That's right. To hear part of it or see part. And of it. And frankly, I'm not. You know, I don't pretend that I know the full story. And I do say this at the end of the book. I mean, I want to be clear that even though this is hundreds and hundreds of pages of research, and you know, hundreds of pages of footnotes, the truth is that um, you know there are still thousands of boxes uh, related to this that we have not seen. And And um, so I don't even believe that this is the end of the story. I mean, I would love to know much more, for example, about the way in which the federal government was involved. We know that the FBI was on the scene. We know that, you know, missives were going uh, up to the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, the CIA, the the, uh, you know, every branch of the military and the government um, coming, you know, on the heels during this this uprising in a small town in a, in a, in a state prison. Um, I don't think we know the half of it, but I hope this book at least recovers a lot of it. And the story matters. 
I think so. I think it matters if if the democ if our democracy matters, then this matters because uh, because everybody on the inside, whether they were a white prison guard who was 21 who was just trying to feed his family in upstate New York who ended up killed, or whether this was a prisoner who was 21 who was just trying to be treated as a human being. Um, you know, the fact that we missed their stories and saw all of them as the enemy is really a tragedy. Heather, please come back next year to talk when do. your your book is reissued. Yeah. I, Detroit is another Detroit. moment like this, right? Yeah. The the Detroit Rebellion of 67. And, and all these myths we tell ourselves about what happened to Detroit after that. I mean, that's what my other book talks about. So happy to happy to come back and talk about writing and myth, myth making. <laughs> well, then, so this is part one. Exactly. Then. Okay. That would be great. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening out there today. Heather Ann Thompson. Um, her book, Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. right still looking for a receiver breaks the tackle and he's got a seat down the sideline touchdown michigan gardner takes the shotgun snap looks to his right and connect reaching for the end zone touchdown michigan amara darba gardner makes a hand up to smith looking firing jake buck one-handed catch he caught it unbelievable catch And with that, folks, hello and welcome to today's Wednesday edition of the Daily Sports Report here on 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name's Morris Fabry. I'll be the host on today's show. On the other side of the glass, I have with me Ian Lemersall, Kevin Klein, Nate Sorensen, and Alex Lopez. It is a full roster on the other side of the glass. And to get things started, we're going to talk about a sport that everybody here loves and follows avidly, uh, Champions League Soccer. Uh, this is a discussion mostly aimed, aimed between me and Alex. I assume we're the only two who uh, who watched any of it. But uh, yesterday, probably the 
probably the most important, the most watched, the most hyped game in the quarterfinals of the Champions League between Bayern Munich and Real Madrid. Uh, A high-octane affair that ended in controversial fashion. Alex, you watched that game. What did you see out there? Um, I saw Bayern get robbed, in my opinion. Um, Ronaldo's two goals were clearly offsides. Uh, he scored five over the course of the two-game tie. I will. He did have a good game, like on the <laughs> standards. Um, he did score five out of the six goals that uh, Real Madrid did score. But like I said, the key goal, the to take him, um, I think it was aggregate on three-three. 